Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. Dr. Chip Doig is an intensivist at the Foothills Medical Center in Calgary. In this episode, we focused on a number of ethical issues in the ICU, from donation after cardiac death to the idea of futility and how to discuss that with patients and their families. Finally, we try to understand how Dr. Doig remains so fresh after all these years as an intensivist. Dr. Doig, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. You're, you're truly a, a mentor for for myself, for sure, and I'm sure uh, Dr. Ball as well. It's... Is this is this where I call uh, Chad Grasshopper? <laughs> yes, <laughs> you, you would. Uh, <laughs> this is exactly that right the right time. I'm, or, I'm still like... waxing on and waxing off, but I can't figure out how to stop. <laughs> <laughs> or Padawan, Padawan also works well in this scenario. For for the listeners who do, may not know you, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you did your training? Absolutely. So uh, I am a first-generation Canadian. My parents uh, came to Canada from England in the 1950s and settled in a small town called Awarden, Saskatchewan. So if uh, anybody's interested, drop an hour south of Saskatoon, uh, go a little bit west, and it's close to a town called uh, Outlook. And uh, from there, they moved into Saskatoon. So I mainly grew up in uh, Saskatoon, but... Um, uh, then went to university in uh, in Saskatchewan and med school in, uh, in at the U of S uh, in Saskatoon, and and I have to say it's uh, it was a fantastic place to grow up, fantastic place to do med school, and uh, I still have a lot of family that are still in Saskatchewan, even though now I've lived more years in Alberta than I have uh, than I I did in Saskatchewan. Still bleed green though, and still cheer for the Rough Riders too. As you as you should, there's there's no doubt. Um, I'm curious in terms of uh, your your training pathway. Where, where did you go to medical school and residency and fellowship and so on? Yeah, so med school was at the uh, University of Saskatchewan. I was uh, at that time the U of S uh, had an older curriculum, so it was a it was a five year curriculum, and it was the only uh, it was the only school in Canada that had a five year curriculum. Maybe that was the school for slow learners, but uh, in in the the history behind it was uh, the fifth year was a full clinical year, and uh, when they converted to a fifth year program, they were trying to get rid of the internship year, and uh, that was actually wasn't successful. So all that ended up is that uh, the main teaching hospitals had a year of free labor from the uh, from the med students, but in that way it was also excellent because we got a lot of clinical experience. 
Um, I went uh, from there to uh, St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. And so, uh, you know, it was a, a growing up in Saskatchewan and, and um, uh, going to med school there was fantastic. Uh, St. Paul's Hospital uh, was also, uh, also fantastic. So that was in the late, time, late 1980s. Uh, in fact, it was the, um, I don't want to say the height, but certainly the start of the of the uh, vast number of patients we saw with HIV without uh, much in the way of uh, effective therapies. And uh, St. Paul's Hospital was this little bastion of, of hope, not only for, for individuals in the West End that were suffering from HIV, but also individuals who, for, for other reasons, uh, were at high risk of HIV or individuals who, who were in the, um, you know, we're living rough or, or socioeconomically disadvantaged, sort of the, the quote unquote east side, uh, areas of, uh, of Vancouver. And, and it was just a, it was an amazing place to uh, learn how to care for, for patients as a, as a rotating intern. And maybe some of your audience will need to have that explained to them too. <laughs> and then I, uh, my, uh, my wife, uh, we started dating in that school. And uh, when I was in med school, she's uh, she's an accountant. Um, so she had actually gotten a job in Calgary. I was in Vancouver. I am one of these few people who who did some of my training in Vancouver and decided to leave. But uh, there was two reasons for it. One was uh, yes, I went after my wife. And the the second is the only downside about Vancouver, even though it's it's lovely, is you know growing up in the winters in Saskatchewan, I didn't mind minus thirty minus 30 minus 40 below because the sky was always you know bright and blue the winters in vancouver are a little bit gray and a little bit wet and i think i suffered a bit of seasonal affective disorder there so did my training in uh, in internal medicine and then critical care in calgary did uh, training in clinical epidemiology the training in bioethics at the university of washington and currently i'm doing uh Two different masters, the Masters of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, our School of Public Policy, and a Masters of Health Economics at London School of Economics. Clearly, you don't have enough uh, degrees in your life, so it makes sense that you concurrently pursue two masters. Uh, and I'm going to do a little psychoanalysis here. So, you know, my parents are, are immigrants as well. How, how much do you think having, you know, immigrant parents growing up in in somewhat rural Saskatchewan. How important was that to you uh, in, in terms of um, the person that you are today and, and your career path overall? So there's a, there's a lovely thing about, uh, I, I don't know if it's unique to Saskatchewan. I'll, I'll say Western Canada because I, I do feel like I'm a, a Western Canadian boy. Um, so so there's, there was a, an adage which was uh, not a hand out but a hand up. And I was always impressed with um, how individuals would always help uh, each other um, in Saskatchewan. I think that's that's extremely important, and maybe it's something that we you know we tend to lose at times, even even in the medical profession. Right? Sometimes it's it's um, you know when you get a consult uh, in the middle of the night and somebody's asking you. For your opinion, we, we, we perceive it as a burden, not as a, how can I help? And, and how, how can I help or, or 
a hand up is uh, is something that uh, I've tried to take away with me from you know from uh, growing up. Certainly, uh, the other nice thing about my parents is they were um, my mom. My mom grew up uh, quite poor as a as a young young uh, as a young woman. Um, got uh, was the first person in her family to ever go to university. Um, and scholarship and education was extremely important to her. My dad, my dad's family was a little bit better off than, than my mom's family. So education wasn't something new in my dad's family, but it was also something that was uh, stressed and strived for. So it was also nice to have those, those, uh, those role models. And, and my mom, my mom, uh, my mom was an amazing uh, person. She, uh, she was an example to me of uh, continuous professional education and development. So, so uh, I saw her do that all of her all of her um, life, and uh, and my dad uh, and my dad as well. I want to take us right into the fire out of the gate here and talk about, in particularly, the ethics that surround transplantation. Um, mm-hmm. You were well well known for some of your concerns surrounding DCD or donation after cardiac death specifically, and I was wondering if you could take us through your sort of thirty thousand foot uh, framework of uh, organ transplantation in general, and then maybe work us into the weeds of DCD in particular. Yeah, sure. So first off, uh, wow, transplantation is amazing. So, so you think back to either the first um, allergenic transplant, you know, maybe technically autologous between, you know, uh, genetically identical twins, uh, Thomas Starzl's work with livers in Pittsburgh, <laughs> all the work that has that has uh, come since then, and and I'm going to just skip over heart transplant because sometimes the first heart transplant and the surgeon he gets all the credit whereas i think where he trained and where he worked maybe doesn't get as much credit uh it it and and all the work since then whether it's uh specific surgical techniques or immunosuppressive therapy regimens figuring out potential recipients um even the way that organs are are um Recovered and maintained uh, now uh, post uh, post donation uh, are just it, you know it's an amazing it's amazing science. So I have nothing but utmost respect for transplant surgeons. I guess I have a slightly different perspective though than some individuals, and so it's easy to depersonalize um, when we talk about donation and transplantation, or to focus solely on the potential recipient. And I think that's where a lot of, um, not public education, but bluntly social marketing to both the profession and the public has, uh, has occurred. So most of the focus is on, you know, the potential to save a life and save a life recipient. And it does tend to minimize and, um, discount, um, the, the, uh, the donor. Second is, uh, again, this is part of not public education, but probably social marketing, where we celebrate the donor. So, uh, I, again, I, I, I understand this from an emotive perspective. So the, the, 
the the family where an individual has donated a number of organs, they receive substantial media um, media uh, coverage, and uh, they're praised. Uh, but we don't hear about um, the family where uh, individuals have chosen to donate but are unsuccessful. For some reason, organs can't be uh, recovered or tissues can't be recovered or used. Um, and, and there's very little discussion about the individuals who, for many reasons, choose not to donate. And I'll, I'll highlight an example of that in a second. And then the third is just to remind everybody that donation after cardiac death is, is nothing new. And I'm not talking about organ recovery that occurred prior to the original definition of, uh, brain death or a neurological determination of death. But, but, uh, we tend to focus on organs as if they're the only thing that counts. And we discount when we do that the importance of tissue recovery, the importance of tissue donation, and the gift that, that, uh, that donors, uh, that are tissue donors, uh, provide. And just to remind everybody, again, the donation of skin results in, uh, life-saving burn coverage. The donation of heart valves can preclude somebody uh, having worsening heart failure and requiring transplantation. And of course, uh, corneal transplants uh, dramatically improve the quality of life of, uh, of individuals, uh, much like any other other uh, transplant can. So um, uh, it, it's not that I'm opposed to, <laughs> to TCD, but there's there are some some things to think about. So I'm going to focus for a minute on donors and donors uh, in two ways. So the first I just mentioned that we don't talk about individuals who choose not to donate. So I'll just, uh, I hope, appropriately anonymize the story. But a, a person who was um, uh, suffered, suffered terrible difficulties through their life. So here are some of the difficulties. Raised in a family where their parents were were um, were taken from their families and placed in residential schools. So this is an individual from an indigenous or First Nations background. Um, within the family growing up, not only having parents that had been dislocated and therefore personally suffered significant trauma, the intergenerational trauma um, then of not not being effective, potentially effective parent, then this individual also suffered, you know, psychological, physical, and sexual abuse um, as a as a child. Left home at the age uh, if I remember correctly, around fifteen or sixteen, lived uh, lived rough or or without secure housing. Um, in a city, entered into sex trade uh, as a way to raise money, became addicted to substances, and of course, immediately there's a motive response in most of our society to look disparagingly on that person. So, a number of multiple whammies, you know, um, just direct discrimination that occurs from our community against Indigenous persons, against somebody who might be a sex trade worker, and against uh, somebody who has a substance use disorder. So, so this individual 
uh, suffered a cardiac arrest from an overdose and uh, was in hospital and um, unfortunately met, uh, uh, had a severe hypoxic ischemic brain injury and met criteria for death. So I sat down and, and talked with the family, and this wasn't the first time talking with the family, but um, it was uh, the decedent's partner and the decedent's brother. Uh, so the decedent was essentially um, uh, no longer had a relationship with the, the rest the rest of uh, of the family. There were other friends that had come to visit this person. So so this person had a in some ways a vibrant social support network, you know, social circle. But I I spoke with the the brother and the partner. So so I did as we we do in the ICU. Talked about what it means, uh, what the injury meant, uh, the determination of death. We had a pause. We then discussed what the next steps would be and either removal of the life-sustaining machines, in this case not life-sustaining, but I use the term physiologic support devices, and or the option of organ donation. And and the decedent's brother, you know, used some uh, you know, very direct, angry, you know, physically appeared angry at me, swore at me. And, and the essence of the comment was, you know, what has society ever done for my sibling that you would have the nerve to to ask um, that my sibling help out others? And and that's that's very dramatic and very telling. And yet we don't tell the stories about why people might say no. I'll add a. A second part to the story, though, and the second part is that, that the decedent's partner, and, and I'm using the term decedent um, because I'm make, trying to make certain that this, this is de-identified or, or anonymized. So the decedent's partner, you know, quietly said to the brother, um, but you know, that's not how they felt. They would, they always tried to help, help you, help their friends, help me. So I think we should focus on that. So I'm not going to tell you the outcome of whether a final decision was to donate or not to donate, but, but, but clearly, you know, again, on one hand, we celebrate only those individuals who ultimately become a donor, and and usually, and by celebrate I mean publicly public adulation or public stories. And on the other hand, we don't tell the stories of the of the other other individuals that died. And I think that's that's a significant shortcoming in the entire donation and transplantation um, discourse uh, that we should be having as a profession. I also use the term social marketing, and I use that very specifically. That is the language that was used in the 1999 National um, Committee around uh, improving organ and tissue donation, um, that it shouldn't be public education, it should be social marketing. There's a huge amount of public health information uh, articles on social marketing versus public education. 
But, but the simple is public education is we provide you facts. Social marketing is we try to, try to change your opinion and make you do something that we think that you, you should, uh, you should do. Yeah, I'm not sure what's right there, what, uh, what, uh, isn't right there. So that's the first part about the potential donor. Second part. And okay, uh, it's obvious now that I'm not a surgeon or a man of few, uh, few words. Uh, so the second part is that, um, um, oh, I was just blanking what I was going to say about the, <laughs> the second part because I had to go into that little, uh, little, uh, little segue. Oh, so it's the variability in practices around end of life. At least with donation after neurological death, we, we have fairly clear, standardized, directed approaches about who is a potential donor. And the potential donor is after somebody has died. The difference with donation after cardiac death is we still don't have that across the country. So we have criteria that standardize when we recover the organs, how we pronounce somebody dead and when we recover the organs. But there isn't discussions about variability in practices around withdrawal and withholding of life-sustaining interventions or life-sustaining treatment and how we make those decisions, particularly in individuals with brain injuries. So locally, I'm quite comfortable that we have fairly consistent practices. We embedded in our protocol very specific ways that we make decisions on who is or who is not uh, or how we decide when, when we, when we consider somebody, um, a candidate for withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy and then approach the families. But there is data that that is quite variable across jurisdictions. And I think it's a uh, mistake that as a critical care community, uh, we haven't, uh, we haven't resolved that. So, um, I think we can resolve it in each of our own local centers, and that's the way I've been able to um, approach it within my own frame of reference. But I, I still admit that I have worries that we haven't done this you know, nationally uh, across uh, multi-jurisdictions like across North America, let alone internationally. So I, I wanted to drill down a little bit on the definition because you're one of the co-authors on a New England Journal paper that actually looked at the resumption of cardiac activity after withdrawal of, of life-sustaining measures. Um, and I think fundamentally one of the challenges around DCD is, as you say, making sure that we have a, a consistent definition. So can you talk a little bit about how you locally have defined uh, DCD and um, and sort of what are the variations across the country and, and how does that play out? Yeah, excellent. So first off, uh, a huge amount of credit to uh, three people in uh, particular. And, and, you know, there's always a risk when you identify a few people that you're going to miss, miss people. So, so there's a huge number of people who uh, deserve credit for uh, for the study in the New England Journal. But first off, the lead author, Sonny Dahani. Uh, Sonny, Sonny's, uh, out of Chio in, in Ottawa. Uh, it, 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 huge heavy lifting and, uh, an example about how important research is as much about the person leading it as, um, as the quality of the, uh, work. 
So Laura Hornby is uh, somebody who's uh, worked with uh, with Sunny, worked in the area of organ donation. I think uh, Laura was uh, was extremely um, was extremely important. Uh, Nathan Scales was extremely important, uh, developing a lot of the software uh, so that we could capture the physiologic data and doing hard analysis. And and uh, and Sam Shemi, Sam Sam was uh, you know sort of uh, integral to the work being done. So so all credit to those four. You know me, I I was just uh, a uh, an investigator on the steering and writing committee, and uh, you know trying to do my my best. So. That work was extremely important and, and, um, uh, identifying particular the issue around resumption of, um, the hemodynamic and or the electrical activity in the heart after, uh, the, uh, withdrawal of life sustaining intervention is extremely important. So, so that's what that study was all about. And there were individuals, you know, there's different terms used. So, uh, you'd think I, I should be a surgeon because, uh, I love the eponyms. So there's something called the Lazarus sign and the Lazarus phenomenon. Lazarus sign is muscular contractions that occur in individuals after they've been determined death by neurological criteria. Lazarus phenomenon is the resumption of cardiopulmonary activity when you've thought that cardiopulmonary activity has ceased. And, and there was data that suggested that, that that didn't happen. So there's a literature review that said, boy, this is extremely rare. That preceded the DPART and DPIC study, which was the feasibility study leading into DPART. Um, but that was uh, incongruent with uh, the clinical experience of many individuals such as myself who had seen Lazarus phenomenon. So, now, spending nights in the ICU, um, the death of an individual is an, an extremely personal event. And what I try to tell um, individuals working in the ICU is, you now in my life, there have been two extremely powerful moments. It's been the birth of my children. It's been the death of loved ones. And so by virtue of our position, we have the privilege to be either interveners or observers, these two intensely powerful moments in in a person and a family's life. So treat that with a great deal of respect and responsibility. And that includes, if we're in the ICU, that, you know, we don't leave an order that just says, you know, disconnect devices, withdraw physiologic support, and and we walk away and the family, you know, never sees hide nor hair of us. But but actually we're present, you know, with the nurses and with the family. So so I've sat at bedsides, either with the nurses outside the room, sometimes family asking me to be with them in the room, and I've seen activity start and stop. So so this trial is extremely important because it it defined that. And I guess the important thing about this is there was variability in how we said that somebody met cardiac criteria for death. So there was variability across Canada. There was variability in Alberta. Edmonton and Calgary had slightly different definitions for when we said that somebody was dead based on cardiac criteria. What, what this study provides is some, you know, outstanding evidence that, that if you wait five minutes, 
without, uh, with the absence of any hemodynamic forward flow, so any pump activity, then, then you're not going to have any pump activity, uh, return. And so, so, uh, this work is extremely important for helping inform, uh, DCD practices. And so, for example, what we've done in Calgary with our, our, uh, our, uh, definition of cardiac death is we've now harmonized it with the data from, uh, from DPART. I'll just reflect on my own experience being on the, the renal transplant team in Calgary, which is a, which is a great group of, of individuals that, that I got to work with. But one of, I have to say, one of the jarring experiences uh, about being on that rotation uh, and participating in DCDs is, you know, you're sitting in the operating room um, and you have a monitor that's connected to the monitor down in the ICU and you're looking at the patient's vital signs and uh, after the, the life support measures or physiologic support, as you say, have been withdrawn and you're looking for parameters that that, that patient has to fall into, as you've outlined, in order for them to be a candidate. And then suddenly there's a mad rush um, as that patient comes up from the directly from the ICU uh, in Calgary, which is in the same building, uh, up to the OR where everyone is standing dressed, scrubbed, ready to to go ahead and uh, retrieve those organs. And so emotionally, it is a strange kind of feeling that you have where you're you're essentially hoping that this person dies in the period that you need for them to be able to retrieve their organs. I don't know. Do, do you think emotionally this that somehow feels different to you and that perhaps plays a little bit into the ethical you know, uh, decision making around this, especially when you're you're there with the family and having you know spent a lot of time taking care of these patients and and talking to their families, does the emotional side of that play into the the ethical decision making when you're thinking about something like DCD? So, so it is a bit macabre, isn't it? I don't think we should understate this, and I don't think we should understate you know even though I provide an ICU perspective. Uh, I think your experience is, is not different than what I've heard from other individuals. And we should find it a bit macabre because if we don't, it, in some ways we're depersonalizing, uh, the importance of, of the donation and recovery, um, uh, uh, from, from that individual or from that family. So, so it, it's, it's extremely, it's extremely important. I think it may even be worse in some centers. So many of the centers that I know in Canada practice the, uh, the, uh, withdrawal of the life-sustaining interventions or treatment. So, um, if, if people are extubated and removed from ventilators, if the vasoactive medications are stopped, those are done outside of the operating room. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's true in all Canadian centers, but I think it happens in most Canadian centers. But in many other centers um, that I'm aware of through personal communication with other other physicians or reports, it happens in the operating room. So so can you imagine being it so you're you're scrubbed and waiting in the operating room as you've described it now, looking at a monitor. And instead you're scrubbed and waiting and the person is immediately in front of you. And I think it's probably beneficial to the recovery team, though I haven't seen any data on this, that there is a little bit of 
um, distancing and separation in time when the withdrawal occurs in another setting because that watch and then suddenly having the body arrive in the operating room, I think that distance allows a, probably a bit of an emotional or psychological reset. Whereas, you know, if, if you're pondering and waiting, uh, with that person in front of you, and, you know, as soon as the second kicks over the time limit, you start the surgical procedures for, for recovery. I, I could imagine that would be more psychologically distressing. Yeah, I had a, uh, you know, I, I agree with you guys, both of you very much. And it's always interesting to think back to being a fellow and, and, you know, getting on planes and showing up in hospitals you've never been in and even outside of DCD with standard donation. Um, the, the variability in, in the, um, sort of the underlying vibe and, and structure and process. Uh, it, it's interesting for sure. Um, Dr. Doig, I was, I was hoping to touch on a few other issues uh, uh, with you today um, that Amir and I had talked about. And I was wondering if we could take it outside of donation and just talk about some general ICU ethical issues that someone of your experience and um, has experienced and continues to experience. And I, I wonder in particular if we could start with the scenario where the critical care team's goals and the patient family goals don't necessarily align. I'm curious how you address that, and in particular, how you manage that scenario when um, you would define the scenario or the the situation as as potentially medically futile. Although I recognize that 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 definition is is uh, laced with landmines. Yeah. So so Nancy Jecker um, Nancy Jecker is responsible with. Uh, Lawrence Schneiderman and Al Johnson for for the seminal paper on uh, futility uh, in the Annals of Internal Medicine Boy, showing uh, either my age uh, or just that I read too many papers that around 1996, 2001, in that in that age uh, that that time interval. Fantastic paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine. She then. Um, I, I believe with the same co-authors wrote a book called uh, Wrong Medicine and uh, also uh, extremely powerful, trying to you know, focus on uh, how do we define futility and then um, uh, exercise it in a, in a practical way. Of course, many people took exception to that, uh, to that term, you know, even, even trying to determine what's, you know, how to define futility. So arguments about you know, outcome futility, physiologic futility, the accuracy of making, uh, those, uh, those decisions. So, so it's, it's, um, it certainly has been an area that, um, I think anybody practicing in an intensive care unit, uh, physician, nurse, respiratory therapist, social worker, um, has, uh, has experienced. It's also, uh, extremely, Brought, uh, with, uh, you know, with difficulty. So sometimes I get why families have difficulty, um, understanding, uh, understanding where the care team might suggest withdrawal or withholding of, uh, life-sustaining interventions and they see it otherwise. 
I think a lot of it actually does come back to us. And I don't mean us as individual practitioners in the ICU, but I'll, I'll just give a few examples of where we may, we may not do as good a job as we should. And, and one of the, one of the end results is, uh, conflict, uh, or dispute that occurs within the ICU at the end of life. And, and I think that's tragic because again, um, this is one of the most intimate times for a family and we surrounded or preceded immediately by, uh, by dispute and conflict. And, and that's horribly unfortunate. But first off, you can imagine that if, if somebody ha uh, is from a community that society does not treat, uh, equitably, um, how, uh, how it creates a significant amount of difficulty. So I'm not going to pull out a particular, um, group within our broader community. Uh, but, but I think there's lots of, lots of data to suggest that there, there remains behaviors within our medical profession that are discriminatory towards, uh, different parts of our, our community. And so we shouldn't be surprised when there might be mistrust or an unwillingness to accept advice from, from, uh, members of, uh, the ICU care team. Uh, because we're just, we could be in the eyes of those families, just representative of a broader problem within the health profession and actually within society as a whole. Second is, unfortunately, some patients who are in the ICU end up there because of uh, misadventure. So patient safety and, and quality of care uh, are sometimes problematic, not not to say they're problematic in the ICU too, but you can understand why a family may not be trusting if somebody has suffered a, a patient safety related event that has either uh, resulted in them ending up in the ICU or occurred in the ICU, uh, preceded, um, uh, at some point a decision about, uh, withdrawing, withdrawing or withholding life sustaining intervention. So, so those are, those are two extremely important things. And, and the third is, uh, communication and professionalism. So, um, do we actually spend time communicating and caring for patients and their families so that we, we build a sense of trust? So, uh, boy, healthcare has changed a lot over the last few years. We've gone to models of care where we're teams, we're, you know, I, I think about surgical services. You know, uh, you, you might be operated on by one surgeon and a second surgeon is on call at night and takes over, over care. And so sometimes, um, identifying and understanding, you know, who the most responsible person is and communication that occurs between different team members with families can sometimes be, you know, confusing. Uh, I don't want to say it's, it's different, but we all present information differently. And so families can become, you know, confused, concerned. And so I think sometimes a, a disputes might have been preceded by difficulties in, in communication and how we, how we express ourselves professionally towards families, both in demonstrating competence, but, but also empathy and, uh, and compassion. And then there are just some, Decisions that are, are difficult where for many reasons family, families might, might disagree with us. I, I have to say that it's, it's funny though how 
ICUs in some ways treated differently than other areas. So since you're surgeons, um, you know, if a surgeon says, mm, not going to do an operation that isn't going to help, we're not going to proceed. I'd like a second opinion. Okay. Uh, second surgeon comes in and says, uh, I'm not going to do an operation that's not going to help. We're not going to proceed. You know, essentially the opportunities for surgical procedures, you know, are essentially exhausted because there's no surgeon willing to take a patient to the operating room. <laughs> yet, yet resuscitation and admission to the ICU is viewed differently. And, and I must admit, I don't understand either the regulatory perspective on that. So where professional associations or professional licensing bodies, regulatory bodies have said, we're going to treat this differently. I, I don't think the courts have come down on a final say on this. Um, I think the courts treat each case uh, as we do individually. And I'm not certain um, there there will ever be a uh, a clear answer from the courts that can be used. Uh, but um, I, I must admit, I struggle. So in the ethics literature, we sometimes treat withholding and withdrawal as as ethically equivalent. Pragmatically, they are quite different because for some families. It's far harder to withhold than withdraw. And for some uh, healthcare practitioners, we don't want to start because we're concerned we'll never, we'll never end. And so meaning that, you know, if we start resuscitative interventions, advanced physiologic support, um, you know, uh, that, that once the patient enters into the ICU, we'll enter into conflict about, about the appropriateness. Then a trial of interventions haven't worked. Let's, let's with, let's withdraw. So the way I approach these is sincerely with a lot of humility and, and modesty with the families. Uh, and it often takes an immense amount of discussion, time spent, clarity, clarity so that families get uh, consistent information. And even then there's there's uh, dispute. So for some patients, disputes are a little bit more, uh, you know, there's a process we use, a, a, consensual, uh, a consensual dispute resolution process. That's that's actually been published. Uh, similar processes have been published, published uh, in the literature. Uh, it's actually in, in guidelines now through the American, uh, American societies and Canadian societies around critical care that we follow these types of, of consensual processes, but it, it doesn't mean that it's easy. And in fact, um, there have been studies of, of psychological distress in other providers and particularly our ICU nurses. And, and, and the problems with providing treatment which is not considered to have therapeutic effect, uh, where the family are in disagreement with the provider team is, has actually been identified as a major area of psychological distress, particularly for bedside nurses and a major reason why individuals leave, leave the, leave the ICU. And, and that's, un, that's unfortunate. So it's, 
it's one of those areas we we still struggle with in the ICU. You know, on the surgical side, it is interesting. There, there's requests that come our way, as you know, that are just technically not possible um, to achieve. And I think those are the easy ones that probably all of us would agree upon. Where the where the gray comes, um, you know, quite frankly, maybe yes versus no due to an individual surgeon's technical ability or or comfort level from their sort of you know day practice. I think that's where, you know, in, inviting your, your friends and being collaborative uh, is, is clearly always going to result in, in hopefully a, a, a more settled, um, maybe a, a collective response. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you in particular, though, is, you know, we wrote a paper probably 10 years ago and published it in the Journal of Trauma that was, a, um, I think it was almost 400. It was many, many critical care uh, physicians, some of which were surgeons and some of which weren't, that looked at end-of-life care and sort of outlook into that broad topic based on country of origin or country of practice, I should say, and, and, and culture and religion. And it was my impression from doing that work with a relatively small group that there was unbelievable variability across, across regions. And what prompted you know us to do that was really my movement from a residency in Calgary to spending almost four years in the U.S. initially doing surgical critical care, and just seeing the the lengths with which um, the the inability to recognize medical futility relative to what I had seen in Canada and in a few different places outside of even Calgary. Um, um, the the difference was 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 tremendous and and and, uh, and remarkable. I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on regional variability in sort of the prism or the the framing of of end of life care, whether that's geography or reimbursement or uh, religion uh, or or really anything. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, so I think that's important. So, um, uh, first, you know, reimbursement. So, uh, in some centers, you know, in the United States versus Canada, of course, um, a, if an individual does have insurance, ICU can be a cost, uh, sorry, a revenue generating, um, center, you know, for a hospital. So, uh, Bluntly, um, disputes that arise over if, if treatment should be withheld or treatment should be withdrawn, um, there might be a different perspective, uh, from senior administration and, and, and as practicing clinicians, we're dependent on support from administration if we do enter into, uh, difficult discussions with, with family. Um, I, I think there is examples of communities that are systemically disadvantaged. And, and again, that, you know, we, we just think as healthcare professionals that as individuals, we are, we are good. We are, we are honest. We have integrity. But I think, uh, and, and even if we're proud of our profession or our hospital and think, think that way collectively about, about our, ourselves as individuals within that larger group. Um, that may not be the experience uh, for the individuals 
who are who are receiving care from 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 uh, that that system. So so it's important to remember remember about being uh, the the individuals who have been disadvantaged uh, systemically by our systems. So you know the third is there is data though that there are differences collectively in practices. So there's differences, uh, for example, some literature Southern Europe. Uh, versus Western Europe in terms of um, how life-sustaining interventions are perceived by the community and therefore offered by the health system. Uh, likewise, the language we use around decisions, treatment decisions, there's data from uh, countries in Southeast Asia or the Asian Rim um, where the language used can be different, uh, between, between regions. And probably within our own hospitals, our own units, uh, even between care teams, <laughs> certainly between individuals, but, but we probably have language that we collectively tend to use, you know, consistently. But, but the way we, we do that in, Calgary might be different, the language we use might be different in, in Edmonton, and that might be good because our communities are different. But but I don't think we understand um, how to uh you know necessarily how to how to approach these discussions where there is conflict. So there's been some fantastic work around end of life care. Uh so Darren uh Heland, um critical care physician from Queen's University, Kingston, did a fantastic amount of this work with the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group. So credit to Darren for a lot of this. So some of the things that we should do, um, you know, how we discuss things with family are understood, but there are some things that, that probably when there is dispute and conflict, we haven't, we haven't investigated the language you use, um, as well under those circumstances. COVID and the last year has been such a different time in all of our lives and it's really brought to the forefront a lot of the issues around ICU care and and essentially the resource limitations and sometimes the decision making that goes around that uh, related to COVID-19 and I'm curious if um, a if if that this whole experience has perhaps changed the way you think about the role that you have in the ICU in the broader medical context and B, if things have changed perhaps subtly in terms of um, how patients and their families view the ICU and perhaps approach that end-of-life discussion. I, I guess I've looked through a few different uh, times in our society where uh, the general public um, and the healthcare system have been have been bluntly have been scared. So I remember back in the late 80s, uh, as the as the spread of HIV became uh, significant through our communities. You know, first some some quite offensive language that was used. So, for example, uh, in in some circles, it was called the the gay plague, and and you now that wasn't different than how some people uh, used the term. You know the the Kong flu, you know, and, and the discrimination that, that Asian Canadians now face, you know, from, uh, you know, from the type of language, uh, used. So, and, and I remember in, you know, in St. Paul's, 
It's actually a little bit of a funny anecdote. You know, we we would admit twelve to fifteen patients on the on the uh, medicine team each night, and we had patients that were um, hoteled or or stayed in the in the emergency department. Um, and our goal was always to have our patients out of the emergency department on the floor before the start of our next next night on call. And uh, when I came to when I came to Calgary, <laughs> so you know, uh, one of my first nights on on call, I sent the I sent the uh, clinical clerk down to do the admission. And I got paged by the eMERGE doc, you know, quite livid and upset, uh, you know, about an hour and a half later. And I'm like, like, what's the issue? And he's like, well, you guys decided to admit this patient and we have a two hour limit that once the patient's been decided to be admitted, they have to leave the emergency department within two hours. And I'm like, wow, this is totally different than, you know, in Vancouver. So, um, you know, the other thing that I've, I've experienced is, uh, you know, SARS, and though we didn't have cases of SARS in, in Calgary in the early 2000s, uh, we prepared for accepting patients, uh, H1N1 in, in, uh, 2009 or 2010, uh, and then, and then, uh, of course, um, with the concern about, uh, hemorrhagic fevers, uh, "Quote unquote Ebola, um, we had to be prepared for hemorrhagic fevers uh, in in 2016, and so. But if I go back to HIV, there was talk about the healthcare system collapsing uh, under the the weight of patients who had HIV. Um, there was fear about spread within um, the hospitals uh, from it, and and." Um, the the lived reality after a while was quite different than what was communicated in the in the uh lay media and and how it was sometimes uh portrayed. And so I, I credit with St. Paul as a hospital for teach for teaching me. So I, I remember our senior sister who was the senior hospital administrator, you know, Coming around at night when I was on call asking me how I was doing, were we coping? You know, more or less saying, don't worry, we've got this. And, and that's how I was sort of, uh, you know, initially trained. And yet if I went home and I read the newspaper, the system was, was, uh, collapsing. And I don't think the experience at St. Paul's was different than, for example, at St. Mike's in, uh, in Toronto. So now I look at, uh, I look at, uh, our experience with COVID. And uh, so COVID has been terrible in many ways. So first off, it has certainly affected a vulnerable part of our community, our, our seniors. Um, and, and I don't think our general public health measures were actually well focused um, on specific protection of our most vulnerable in our community. So we saw you know, uh, widespread masking, uh, social distancing, uh, those interventions. I'm not certain that they were particularly well targeted and well directed, uh, to preventing spread of infections within our long-term care facilities and, uh, those particularly over age 75 who were initially affected and, uh, and died. Certainly, um, as it spread through, 
younger individual. And, and I will point out with those, those individuals, for a lot of them, we, we provided, um, care in situ. So they actually, they might have come to hospital or if they, they came to hospital, they were, they were cared for outside the, the intensive care unit. So in the early phases of the, of the spread of the infection in Canada, I, I don't think the ICUs were particularly hard, uh, hard hit. Um, but there was a lot of fear. Um, for sure, there was a lot of fear about the total number of patients we might we might have to manage, but there was also fear about spread and spread to providers. And and I think some of the information that we heard from other jurisdictions, for example, um, from Italy, probably um, did us a bit of uh, disservice in caring for the uh, for the community and also how we responded um, in general within the community. Sort of from November through December, January, we've seen a lot of individuals who have been in primarily in the age range of, you know, 50 to 70. Most of them have um, some chronic health conditions, the two most common being hypertension or diabetes, um, um, you know, obesity or an increased BMI. Uh, how we characterize that, so is that a chronic health condition uh, or not? That That's also the other major risk factor. So, so those individuals in the ICU, in one way, were no different than other patients that, than, that we typically see in the ICU. So acute lung injury, you know, fairly, um, what our expertise is, managing physiologic support devices, um, supporting abnormal physiology while, while things uh, improve. I actually think that was relatively, uh, relatively uh, straightforward. Um, was our capacity increased? Yes, but we managed that as, as a system. So my, my perspective is a little bit different than some other ICU physicians who have either been quoted in the general media or, or in social media. I, I, I saw our systems actually do extremely well managing the surge, managing the additional patients. Not to say we weren't busy. We were absolutely busy, but, but the system helped us. So I like to think about the ICU, you know, that the role of any consultant should be, and sometimes we forget that's right. Two in the morning, you get that consult. Um, whether you're the senior resident, the junior resident, the attending physician, two in the morning, you get that consult and it's like, oh man, I got another patient I have to go see. Rather than, you know, somebody's asking for my help, how can I go help? Somebody needs my help, how can I go help? So if the ICU is sort of, you know, I like to think, you know, the, the ethos of the ICU should be, how can I help within the hospital, within the system? How can I help? Now, the surgeons had had a difficult case. How can I help you? You know, the anesthetist calls me from the operating room. You bet. Thanks for telling me about the case. How can I help you on the, the patient? Can I? You betcha. In this case, you know, with the ICUs filled up, we asked for help from the rest of the hospital, the rest of the system, and it's amazing how it responded. So, so former ICU nurses who worked in recovery room, who worked in surgical oncology, who worked in outpatient clinics came back to the ICU. I had pediatric emerge docs working, you know, beside me as, as our term was as a surge doc. So as additional pair of hands, uh, in the ICU. You know, we, we impacted care to other patients in the system by, by shutting down, uh, surgical services. I'd like to think that in some places, we really tried to keep 
the system working as effectively as possible. And so I'm, I'm actually quite proud of how, how Calgary did that. I think we had very few surgical down days or surgical cases canceled, but I know that wasn't the case across um, all of our province, let alone our, our, our country. But, but it's, you know, in some ways it was amazing. So working in the ICU was, you know, in one way, just with my experience, no different than what I've seen in other significant health threats to our, our community and our system. And in other ways, uh, I was really gratified to be working uh, in our system to see how well it it it, uh, it coped, and I think it coped uh, extremely extremely well. There is one thing I worry about, though, and and there's a significant amount of data available in lots of public websites around mortality during uh, during the COVID pandemic, and so the term excess deaths are used. So these are the observed deaths over a time period above the expected deaths. And, and that's usually calcul calculated using a standardized number, so per 10,000, per 100,000. And the expected deaths is the deaths that occurred as an average over the, you know, the most sites report over the previous five years. So we're definitely seeing excess deaths in our community. And those excess deaths are not fully explained by COVID. So there are excess deaths above and beyond COVID. And, and that's actually quite disconcerting, um, for me. So, so I think I personally have admitted more individuals post cardiac arrest from opioid intoxication into the ICU during the period of the pandemic than I've admitted who have had COVID. And I know of individuals who have presented to hospital in a delayed fashion from, from strokes or acute myocardial infarctions that have not survived. I've even seen individuals who have presented in a delayed fashion with upper gastrointestinal bleeds from duodenal ulcers who have had uh, significant morbidity, um, quite different than I think I would normally see, although that might be a bit more anecdotal. So, so there, there is, um, when all of this is finished, I think there will have to be some careful consideration about how we responded to, to COVID, both from a public health perspective, but also, also as a acute care health system perspective on, on whether we provided the best care possible to the entire population, to the entire, um, spectrum of, uh, of illnesses. Of course, one of the difficult things is we won't know what would have happened if we had done done something differently? But there are maybe some uh, international comparisons that we can make because there were differences uh, in some jurisdictions about how they managed how they managed the response to the uh, to the pandemic. Yeah, it's certainly a very hot topic right now. There's there's no doubt. We have a manuscript coming out that looks at um, you know just the change in in the the injury. Uh, pattern and volume on the trauma service. And to your point, it was very clear that levels of interpersonal violence, particularly gunshot wounds, um, went through the roof. In fact, it went up almost threefold. And that's interesting where you didn't have in a country like the U.S. a massive influx of handguns into the, into the community. It still happened. And it was clear to us looking after the patients, um, just probably like it was to you as well, that there was a lot of, uh, 
social obstacles that uh, had uh, led to um, certainly the turmoil and the subsequent injuries as well. And, and so you're, you're right, Chad. So, so the, so, um, I pointed out a, a few cases, you know, there, there's, um, epidemics of, of, uh, events that, that we don't see. They're hidden in society and at times at the health profession, for example, domestic violence. And we might see physical violence. We see lots of sometimes the psychological violence that occurs. And, and so, you know, the social distancing and the, the requirement to stay at home, uh, you know, I, I do wonder what the morbidity will be of the, you know, of victims of, you know, for example, domestic violence. Uh, the expenditures, so I think, um, 383 billion is our federal deficit. And of course, that stimulus spending was to maintain our, our GDP. So, uh, boy, I might have might have numbers wrong, but if our GDP is about fifteen hundred billion, you know, we spent about twenty percent of our GDP as a single deficit in in a year, and that that's you know that's huge. And so, you know, uh, thinking from a economics, not just a pure outcomes perspective of our our health system, uh, will we be able to say? that our how we manage this did we manage it efficiently and effectively so effectively did we actually improve outcomes and efficiently did we improve outcomes at a at a reasonable at a reasonable cost and i i think that's going to be something that's going to be the subject of research for you know for for many years to come Dr. Doug, we, we've touched on a lot of topics, and, and we're mindful of your time. But but we wanted to touch on just just two more before we before we let you go. The the first is something we could probably talk about for hours, and I think you and I probably have. But you know, you've you've uh, you've mentioned a few times the the research world with which you have come up in, and that that you still participate heavily in. I, I'm curious if you could give us your thoughts on the on the publisher parish uh, traditional axiom, and and maybe reflect on anecdotal observation that the the drive to do research um, certainly in the surgical world I don't know in the internal medicine and critical care world if it's the same at the trainee level seems to be much much lower both in terms of expectation as well as just natural endogenous uh, want to to pursue that those avenues I, I also wonder uh, you know a little bit as a result um, what the impact of um, health authorities that really don't care much about anything beyond, you know, in theory, quality patient care leading to, um, you know, popular opinions uh, surrounding healthcare in general that are directed towards a government. Um, I think we, we all know that, you know, doing research, there's more and more obstacles every week and every month. And, um, I don't think you know the, the the health authorities in this country anyway really really care much about the link the theoretic link between good quality research and patient safety and quality and and so on. But you know may, maybe my view of that is jaded. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, you know it's uh, so it's interesting, right? So um, a, a couple of very very simplistic observations. It's amazing 
the training that some individuals have as they enter into medicine. And, and if, if they've already started postgraduate studies by the time they enter into medicine or they complete postgraduate studies before or during medical school, research intensive graduate studies. And yet at the somewhere during their clinical training, that that drive to do that type of work disappears. Um, I, I think it it means there's a fundamental problem with how we're we're recruiting um, individuals. Not that everybody um, should want to or should do research, but if we're demanding graduates, um, individuals, we're, we're not demanding. But the practical reality is that many students have these now. Why is why is that a criterion if 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 research uh, isn't isn't really part of their their future career? What's been the benefit of doing that? Likewise, during training, I I can think of well, well, Chad, you're a bit of an example, but I'll, I I won't use you you as the example. I'll, I'll use some of my oh, I was going to use some of my neurosurgical uh, the individuals training in in neurosurgery right now. So I know. Neurosurgical trainees that are PGY 10, 11, 12. So they're, they're doing a difficult clinical training. They're more or less required, at least in my center, to do a PhD. They're then uh, during their residency, if they don't already have one, but during their residency, if they do have a PhD, they're going off and doing other, other uh, research training. And, and then they're doing, you know, subspecialty training before they, they get hired. Wow. And, and what's the benefit and what's the output of that if, if research is not part of their, their future career? So I think there's something fundamentally flawed with either the expectations of individuals or the, the way we're, we're training individuals if research is not important. So the second observation I'll make is, you know, uh, boy, I've been lucky enough to be involved in a whole bunch of different, uh, projects. And I like to think I was just in the right place at the, at the right time. So, and, and I like to think that I have a, a bit of an inquisitive nature and a bit of, a bit of a kid in a candy store. So if you, you know, you put a, 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 or maybe a cat with a laser light, you sort of point a laser light, you know, I'll follow that around and, and have fun with it until the next colored laser light comes along. So, um, you know, some of the, some of the projects that, that I've been involved with and bluntly have led has just been that I asked a question, uh, during doing some of the work. So I led, I led uh, the clinical skills program early in my career. I just asked a question about how we were doing the OSCE exams in our, our clinical skills. Um, Said to myself, boy, it'd probably be good to evaluate this. Tur turns out I had a, you know, a publication in academic medicine and that's not a big clinical journal, but it's actually the leading medical education journal. You know, I, I, um, lucky enough to work with a guy called Paul Coops. So I've had two nature medicine papers with, with Paul and a couple of them were just asking simple questions. So, um, 
So, so asking uh, simple questions. So, so the thing is, is that I've been very fortunate uh, interacting with uh, interacting uh, with individuals. Um, on a clinical side, you know, um, it's extremely gratifying to to care for an individual. You know, I mentioned earlier the privilege of caring, you know, for somebody and the responsibility that goes uh, with that. One of the huge impacts, though, I think we tend to forget whether it's a important quality improvement initiative that has improved quality of care in our local center, or it's an important research uh, program, or it's even education, how we've improved uh, the skills of, of individuals within our community, uh, our, our professional community. So when you publish, when you do that work well, and the results are valid, and you publish that work. Whereas our direct care might improve a singular individual, we, we actually have the opportunity to improve the care for a larger percentage. So, so our, our, our potential to help extends dramatically. And I think we forget that. And so I see research as, as part of our professional responsibility because if we've figured out a better way to do things, isn't it important that we, we communicate that and share our experience with others? Um, you know, unfortunately, I think what's happened with research, though, on the negative side is is sometimes we've focused on research product productivity or research excellence um, at the sacrifice of clinical productivity or clinical excellence. And so I think we should be striving to to be both. So um, for me, it it shouldn't it should never be about the quantity. It should be about the the quality. And I guess uh, the final comment I'll make about it is, I have changed my perspective about research a couple of ways. Um, and one of the ways is um, the importance of of publication. So where we where we publish. So everybody wants you know JAMA JAMA surgery. Um, uh, uh, Lancet, uh, Nature Medicine Science, so these super big, super big journals. So the first is, um, I had uh, an individual who I consider to be not only Canada's, but probably the world's leading critical care researcher, Deborah Cook. So Deborah's at the master. Phenomenal person. So Deborah once told me that the publications that she was most proud of sometimes aren't in the top tier. They're, they're the genesis of the idea. They're the original work that started off a larger program of research. And they're in second tier journals. So we sometimes dismiss publications in second tier journals, but I think they're, I think they're important. We sometimes dismiss, um, publications like case reports or case series. And yet, I try to remind individuals who are heading into research or trainees that are writing up their first paper, a case report or a case series can be extremely important. And in fact, let's, let's not forget that our understanding of HIV started with a case report of an unusual opportunistic infection in San Francisco and reporting of Kaposi sarcoma in IV drug users in, uh, in New York. So case reports and case series are just as important as other types of, of publications. And the final thing is, 
sometimes focus on journal publications. So I think there's an importance to lay media publications too. I'm not sure I'm going to extend it all the way to uh, to all types of social media, but but I'm participating on your blog, so I might be uh, I might be old-fashioned, and TED talks are certainly uh, really important. Um, but you know, other we should be celebrating other facets of communicating as well. And and this became an issue when I was a department head um, because I had a faculty member who produced a number of opinion pieces in the Globe and Mail and the National Post. And around the department head's table, this person's work was discounted. And I made uh, the following comment. I said, you know, I'm not certain how to weight some publications because I don't know how many people have read them, how many people have cited them, and, and therefore the big impact that they have. But I said, you know, I know the circulation of the Globe and Mail, and I know how many senior health or policy or governmental individuals, you know, will read the editorial page of the Globe and Mail or the National Post. So you're telling me that these publications aren't important? Explain further. And so, so I do think actually thinking, um, outside the usual convention of our peer-reviewed uh, literature and publications are, uh, are important. As long as they have a, a, an, a, you know, a tangible impact. So, so, um, I, I hope those comments make some sense. Dr. Doiga, one thing I can comment on from my own personal experience, having been on call with you, is that it, it is really something to, to see you and have you as a staff person on call in the ICU. I particularly remember one night on call, uh, where I think there was no fellow and I, I was, you were stuck with me on call. And uh, I just remember walking around the hospital with you getting called to code after code, watching you drop lines and intubate people like, like there was no tomorrow. And, and looking at you, you know, as someone who's already had, you know, a, a fantastic career as taking care of people um, throughout their career and, and has had so much clinical care, it was kind of refreshing and enjoyable to watch someone um, really enjoy their craft. Um, so what tricks do you have uh, for staying engaged and relevant and interested uh, after all, after all the years that you've you've been doing this and having been so busy, and maybe you could comment a little bit about um, your your COVID sabbatical experience as well, and maybe how that ties into staying fresh. Well, so so a couple of things. So first is I'm going to give uh, credit to a couple of my you know my mentors. So. Uh, uh, Dr. Ed Somerville, who was an internist in Saskatoon uh, City Hospital. Ed was uh, a former Canadian uh, military uh, physician who had uh, left the military and was in uh, private practice. And um, so, so many of the interns were kind of scared by Dr. Somerville. And um, he, he was he was a family friend, so maybe he treated me differently in some ways, or maybe. I just wasn't as frightened of him as some of the other uh, house staff were. And the reason people were were um, perhaps a little bit intimidated by him, frightened is probably a, a wrong, uh, poor choice of words, is because he had high expectations of individuals. He wanted individuals to always work hard and do their best. And he truly put patients at the center of things. So, so. Um, some of the um, 
in, in turns would sort of make fun of Dr. Somerville because the start of his start of his notes often were something like this. I remember one of them, you know, this ex-year-old uh, gentleman who uh, survived 24 missions in a Halifax over uh, Western Europe and was shot down and spent six months in a um, in a prisoner of war camp. Da, 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 with the clinical details after that. And he always had these, the beginning sentence of his consult notes or his histories with that. And so I sort of, I went up to him like, like Dr. Somerville. So, so what some of the other house staff, oh, you know, he's always trying to one up us, you know, show us how much he knows about things. I said, well, to Dr. Somerville. I said, Dr. Somerville, why do you do this? And he goes, Oh, it's a memory cue for me. Goes, you know, as soon as I read that line, I can remember the entire patient's story. And I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. But then he also said, but, you know, to remember the patient, you have to get to know the patient. And so, you know, he taught me a very subtle lesson about, you know, hidden meanings behind things, but also to, to take the time and, and to try and get to know, to know the individuals that we're, we're caring for. And, you know, he was, um, he was actually a little bit, um, not that he would ever show that he was offended, but, you know, he knew some of the comments of the other host staff and he was, he was, maybe he wasn't offended. I think he was sometimes disappointed, um, with those, uh, those, uh, those comments. Lots of individuals that I could point to that I had the privilege to work with, uh, when I was at uh, St. Paul's. But one of them was a internist by the name of, uh, Jack Onrot or, or Jake. Um, we all called him Jake. And so, uh, he would give us Thursday afternoon teachings and, you know, he, he looked forward to the interactions with the host staff and those that that hour to hour and a half to two hours he would spend with us he was completely dedicated to us and you know that was fantastic and what he said was you know well yeah i love this because i probably learn more from you than you do from me and it's quite to the contrary but you know the time he spent with host staff was important and the same thing for me now i i i learned so much from the individuals i work with not not just not just medicine, but but actually how they interact with each other. Now, I grew up in a generation where, you know, you you had to be, you know, the expectation was that, um, you know, you'd carry a load, you'd you'd you'd, you'd do it yourself, you you know, you'd work hard, all those sort of things, you know, um, and and I I probably I'm a very social uh, person in, in any ways, but how I see individuals work together as teams isn't something, even though I work in the ICU as a team and I've played sports on a team and I know how important teamwork is. I learned so much from, from other host staff, uh, team, team wise. Final thing I learned from Jake though was, um, and I remember as a, as a, uh, uh, on the medical service, I admitted this, uh, this gentleman, he was living rough or was socially, economically housing disadvantaged, um, east side of Vancouver, had a alcohol use disorder. Um, he was First Nations from, from, uh, one of the Haida, Haida communities. And so he, uh, he was admitted, unfortunately, with, um, alcoholic, uh, hepatitis. And I admitted him, uh, he was on my medical team. You know, the attendings had discharged him, I discharged him. 
And we had a follow-up clinic and, you know, we booked him into the follow-up clinic. Never expected him to show up. And so the day of his follow-up clinic came and, you know, uh, Jake paged me and he's like, where are you? And I'm like, uh, you know, up on the floors. He said, well, your patient's here. Get down here now. And I could tell from his tone of his voice, he was like annoyed at, at me. And it was more than just being annoyed at being late for an appointment. So I came down and he, well, the patient was there and, and, you know, Jake grilled me. He was sort of like, what was the patient's medical problem? You know, did you think the patient needed to be discharged? You know, you discharged the patient though. What were you telling me? You didn't think, oh, so you're attending to the discharge and so you discharged him. So you just follow, you know, did you question your attending? And it, it was sort of, um, so two things. So first is he made me admit the patient back to hospital as a private patient under him. And I cared for him on top of my other duties. And then when he was discharged from hospital a couple of weeks later, I had to see him in follow-up clinic and follow him in Jake's follow-up clinic as my private patient. And you know, when I was on obstetrics, I went down to the internal medicine clinic to follow his patient. Got to know him really well. He was a, he was a gifted, gifted artist. Uh, again, a victim of many, many things, uh, historically, such as, um, a survivor of, of the residential school system, uh, socially, uh, dislocated from his family, uh, terribly injured during, during his time at school. So, so anyways, uh, I looked after him for about six months in the follow-up clinic and I showed up one day and he wasn't there. And, and like I was, quite worried about him. And so on the weekend, on my day off, I actually, you know, um, quite looking for him. I'm walking around East part of Vancouver looking for him because I was kind of worried about him because, you know, he had made such a huge, profound impact for me. Couldn't find him. He never came back to the clinic, never saw him again. And, and I was actually quite emotionally distraught by that. And, and, you know, Jake took me aside and sort of said, you know, um, you know, listen, for six months, you know, you probably provided more care for that individual than he's had in his entire career. So, um, celebrate that, that you made a difference for a short time in that, that person's life. And so, you know, working with, um, younger physicians, I do try to remember, you know, the advice that individuals who helped train me gave me along, along the way. And I try to reciprocate reciprocate that you know that 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 caring is is important what one of the things i'll often say is one of a minor teaching point is you know what's the most important word in 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 intensive care unit and it's it's care you've been listening to cold steel the official podcast of the canadian journal of surgery If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.